Good morning, Storyline. It's good to be apart together. I hope you're doing well. Gosh, I miss you all so much. I saw this clip from a TV sitcom, Community, last week, and I immediately thought of us. The premise of this show is a bunch of misfits from all walks of life find themselves thrust together as classmates at a community college. And in spite of so many apparent differences and obstacles, they become a genuine community. And I think that's what makes Storyline special. I mean, we've described it in many ways in the past, whether it's the Island of Misfit Toys or we're the Plan B community where everyone has a story, like some reason that we resonate here with this group. Um, we find ourselves drawn for many different reasons to what God is doing in and through Storyline. So this morning, I'd like to take a fresh look at that like what it is that's bringing us together to flesh it out a little bit as both a reminder, you know, something to celebrate and as a challenge, uh, something that we must continue to strive for. In one of my very, very favorite passages in the Bible, one of Jesus' first followers, a man named Paul, is trying to describe how committing his life to Jesus has changed the way that he lives. And this is what he wrote. I have freely and happily become a servant of any and all so that I can win them to Christ. When I am with the Jews, I seem as one of them so that they will listen to the gospel and I can win them to Christ. When I am with Gentiles who follow Jewish customs and ceremonies, I don't argue even though I don't agree because I want to help them. When I'm with those who don't agree or don't believe, I agree with them as much as I can, except, of course, that I must always do what is right as a Christian. And so by agreeing, I can win their confidence and help them too. When I'm with those whose consciences bother them easily, I don't act as though I, don't, I know it all and don't say they are foolish. The result is they're willing to let me help them. Yes, Whatever a person is like, I try to find common ground with him so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. I do this to get the gospel to them and also for the blessing I, mis I myself receive when I see them come to Christ. Now there is so much profound wisdom in what Paul is saying here. In one translation, it says, I have adapted to the culture of every place I've gone so that I could more easily win people toward God. Another simply says, I have become all things to all men so that by any means necessary, I may save some. And one of the ways that we could summarize this takes us back to what we were talking about last week, that love simply finds a way. Love will do anything necessary to be and do good for others. Because love recognizes that being right isn't good enough. Now unfortunately, this is not a sentiment widely shared in our culture today. There is a tragedy lurking in modern America right now. And it's this forced binary world that our culture creating institutions like the media and Hollywood, academia, politics, and tragically even religion are trying to foist onto us. 
Too often these institutions traffic in easy answers, in simple slogans that end up dividing us. And when all of life, every issue, every problem has an obvious cause and a simple solution that all the good and smart and right people see, well, we lose the, the ability to interact meaningfully with people who don't think, believe, or vote like we do. Now, fortunately, when we actually get to know one another, it's obvious to all of us that life is not as simple and straightforward as all the talking heads say that it is. That, that people who disagree with our perspective are not doing so because they are stupid, bad, or out to destroy the world. Still, when every source of information comes couched in, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, take it or leave it, it's extremely difficult to listen to others who don't share our view. In the false binary world that all too often politics and the media and religion becomes, others aren't just mistaken or wrong, they're bad, maybe even evil. And you don't negotiate with evil. You might have noticed that God and Satan rarely issue bipartisan agreements. For the mission of the church, outlined so beautifully by Paul in this passage, to move forward for the abundant life, Jesus promised to take root in our life and permeate our community, our culture, and society, we have to find another way. We must cultivate a deep respect for all people, a growing appreciation for alternate perspectives, and a robust humility about the limitations of our current understanding of, well, everything. See, I think Storyline is cultivating that type of community. And now, right now is the time for us to lean into that even more, to stretch and push ourselves to do that even more. Father Greg Boyle um, has a gang intervention program in Los Angeles where he's been working with young people for decades. And I once heard him tell a story about interviewing a young man in his program in front of a big crowd. And he said to this kid, so you really turned your life around. What, what is it that I said to you that made the difference? And the boy paused and hemmed and hawed and he was clearly kind of stuck and the crowd started to laugh awkwardly because... They, we all understood he was having trouble remembering something that Father Boyle had taught him. And finally, the young man just admitted, gee, I don't remember anything you said, I guess, but I'll never forget how you treated me. This is what I've always admired about people who are making a difference. They are much less concerned with being right and much more concerned with doing good. And what we see Paul saying in this passage is a profound profile in courageous leadership. It's modeled after the way Jesus lived and it drives incredible change whenever it is emulated. That's so powerful, isn't it? We have to remember and acknowledge that right now you and I believe in things that one day we won't. We believe that something is true 
that one day we won't. We believe we have answers to some things that one day we'll realize were only partially true or maybe even completely wrong. And this is why it makes no sense to lead with what's right and our current version of truth and all of our right answers. Look, I'll be the first to admit, I have made multiple conversions in my life from someone who didn't believe in God to someone who does, from one political perspective to another and now to a third, from one type of Christian to a second and now to a third. I'm gonna be 54 years old and the list of things I used to think, I used to believe, and I used to know that now I don't is really, really long. Now that's not something I'm proud of, but it's not something I'm ashamed of either. By definition, human transformation happens only when we set aside our preconceived notions, suspend our disbelief, and open up to new possibilities and perspectives to humbly consider another path, a new understanding, a fresh take. How can we want and hope that for others, but not practice it ourselves? That's why I love this interview with Nelson Mandela because it's so clear that he is just refusing to be a victim and he's, he's so humble and he's just taking life as it is, complicated, complex, difficult, requiring nuanced and humble and communal approaches to move forward. You see, bumper stickers and slogans just aren't going to get the job done. So one of the reasons that I try to approach every talk for storyline with a deep sense that we are all very much in process and hopefully in permanent discovery mode. I guess what I'm saying is most of what any one of us believes to be true, right and good, is probably mostly true, right and good. But for none of us, not one of us, is everything that we currently think and believe totally and completely true, right, and good. Carl Jung put it like this, even if what you know and believe is true, it is woefully insufficient. You see, even when we know what we know is actually true, it's never the whole truth. Right now, is a moment for everyone to lighten up, to hold on to our truth a little more loosely. I mean, what, what might begin to happen if we did that? I think that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. But there are things that make this very, very difficult to do. There are incredibly powerful forces within us and around us that are trying to shove us into a simple world of false dichotomies, into binary views of life and every issue under the sun. These exterior forces are doing this in order to win viewers, followers, votes, and converts. Translation, money and or power. The, these forces are playing us. They understand that human beings are vulnerable to easy answers. And, and to quickly organizing ourselves into what we've been calling for years, P 
purity pockets in what anthropologists call tribes. You see, we all, human beings, have this universal interior force that's working within us. And that is, by nature, we are tribal. And for good reason. Organizing ourselves into groups that look and think alike provided us with sustenance and protected us from threats that others, everybody out there that doesn't look and think like us, posed. The problem is, we now live in a very different world. And the hard truth that we all have to face is, what made the way for us to get this far? Homogeneous, holy huddles, purity pockets of look-alike, think-alike, believe-alike tribes. That is now in the way. What made the way is now in the way. Writing just after World War I almost completely destroyed the Western world. The poet W.B. Yeats imagined what the future might look like if this tribalism continued. And he wrote this poem, and it is a terrifying vision. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. Does that sound familiar? Creating a large community, one beyond a closed clan of clones, is very, very difficult. And it's almost impossible when our innate tribalism is being leveraged against us to divide us. Look, purity pockets all at once make us right and them wrong. Holy huddles alleviate us of the responsibility to take on the challenge and sacrifice to be and do good. Being, because in, in tight tribes of the right religion or closed clans of the righteous movement or political party, being good is easy because being in the right tribe is being good. And that means goodness devolves into simply condemning, excluding, shunning, and shaming those who disagree. Look, the church has perfected this, and I promise you, it doesn't work. But this is the allure of tribalism. We think belonging to the right tribe will sustain us, protect us, and make us good. And we all want to be good. So in this incredibly complex world where easy answers elude us, where movement forward is almost always stilted and awkward, like two steps forward, one step back, where it requires humility and discomfort and self-sacrifice, in a world like that, when someone comes along selling being good is as simple as condemning those who are wrong, we buy in bulk and we divide into camps. And the people behind the podiums and the pulpits, the people with microphones and cameras know this about us and they are exploiting it. If aliens have been watching us for the last 10,000 years, they would not be wondering why people distrust one another, why groups war with one another, why people live in fear, need, oppression, and suffering. Do you know why? Because that would be the norm. That's the usual. 
they would look at our society and see the enormous relative wealth, stability, peace, cooperation, and wonder, how are we doing this? How have we been doing this? Because what we have here and now, as flawed and as unfinished and as imperfect as it is, is incredibly rare. This is why what Kesia shared a few weeks ago was so beautiful and so brilliant. She could all at once look at the cold, hard reality of the enormous injustices that are part of the American story and yet still call us back to something beyond tribalism, to form some kind of ever-widening center that holds, that will hold us together. And I believe this is exactly where the gospel of God's grace comes in. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, the way the ancient man learned to live in large-scale societies was through a shared sacred center. By worshiping something bigger and beyond ourselves, people set aside their own personal best interest to work for the good of the whole, or as Paul put it in our passage this morning, to become a servant of all. Grace, the undeserved love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God. What if that was at the center? What if that was the one thing that brought us together? Then by definition, everyone, everywhere, every day is now invited to be in the tribe. You see, I believe, unlike many religions, and unfortunately some churches, where the center is a particular theological commitment, and it's usually conjoined with a certain political perspective, we are striving in storyline to make grace, and only grace, the center which is why our tribe is so diverse in these two categories that usually separate people. Grace is a sacred center that holds. But look, it comes with very challenging um, commitments to make. It comes with a very challenging invitation to stop the tribalism to disband the purity parade, to break the holy huddle. God is imploring us to live like he does, which means to get out there and do good. Read again how Paul says he lived. Freely and happily become a servant of any and all. When I am with blank, I seem as one of them. I don't argue even though I don't agree. I agree with them as much as I can. I don't act as if I know it all. I find common ground. (laughs) That sounds crazy today, right? What an enigma. I mean, who is telling us and encouraging us to to be like that, to live in this way? What news station, which university, what church, what political party? None. Do you know that when we look at the life of Jesus and ask simple questions like, Which religious denomination did he belong to? And there were many divisions in Judaism at the time. We don't know because he didn't say. If we were to ask about his politics, like was he a zealot or a nationalist, maybe a revolutionary or was he a Herodian? We don't know because he didn't say. We have no idea what Jesus believed theologically or politically about many of the controversial issues of his day. And maybe it's because he was too busy loving people doing good 
to worry about being right. He was purposely put in all kinds of double-bind situations by both the religious establishment and the political elite to see which side he'd condemn with questions like, should we stone this woman? Or should we pay taxes to Caesar? Or even one time he was asked, what is truth? But Jesus wouldn't fall for it because he knew just being right isn't good enough. You see, he was on a mission of grace to make grace the sacred center that holds, that helps us to get together. Thanks, guys. I I love that old song. They did such a great job with it. Now, am I supposed to believe that the poor and the dispossessed, the suffering and the oppressed find any comfort at all in my rightness? Like that I watch channel A and not channel B, I agree with X, believe in Y, and vote for Z. I don't think so. See, Jesus exposed this approach to be a self-serving, self-congratulatory way of living. He demonstrated not just with his teaching, but also with his life by who he included, invited, liked, and loved. And it wasn't just outcasts. It was also the enemies of outcasts. That the conservatives versus liberals of his day, the anarchists and the nationalists, the religious and the secular were all corrupt. They were all selfish, self-righteous, and divisive tribes stuck in these tighter and tighter and ultimately suicidal purity spirals. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that the only way Jesus could be put to death was if the two extreme ends of the political and the religious spectrum, people who hated each other, they couldn't agree with each other on anything, the only way Jesus could be put to to death is if those two groups got together to conspire to murder him. I mean, to, to wrap our minds around this, we'd have to imagine Fox News, the New York Times, the Southern Baptist Convention, Um, convention, CNN, the KKK, and Black Lives Matter, all hating the same person so much that they got together in order to kill him. That is what happened to Jesus. You have to ask yourself, why? It's because they knew that the division, the strife, the binary, black and white blame game and the simple solutions they were selling wouldn't work if Jesus' way of grace became the shared sacred center. So to keep the scam alive, to cling to power, for the fundraising to flourish, they all knew Jesus had to go. Now what would have to be true about a community today that it, would be, that it would confound and frustrate both sides of the culture war like that. What might happen if a community of people came together to live this way, stopped arguing about who's right and started trying to live in and live out of this shared sacred center of grace? David Brooks, writing in the New York Times last week, said this, if you think we can deal with racial disparity, reform police departments, address an existential health crisis, and a prolonged economic depression by taking the culture war up another notch, I think you are mistaken. Jesus came to show us another way, 
to save us from the consequences of what is now becoming obvious. Humanity's suicidal drive to retreat into purity pockets, holy huddles, and tight tribes of self-congratulatory self-righteousness. But grace, the never-ending, ever-growing, always-expanding, totally-accepting, radically-inclusive, ever-yearning, unconditional love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God, made visible, tangible, and livable through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is both the therapeutic and the vaccine for tribalism. Grace creates a generous orthodoxy, a big community with open arms because it's built upon the assumption that God alone knows the whole truth and our role is to do good. And I know even that is complicated. But when we let go of the need to be right as our first instinct, uh, of the quick hit that we get of self-righteousness when we condemn others for being wrong, and if we'll cling to the mission of grace, it will hold us together. All kinds of people from all kinds of perspectives together. And in a way that maybe we even come up with some new ways forward. Now, I'm not saying we can't have personal perspectives or that we shouldn't be advocates for certain changes, reforms, or even political parties or particular theological um, position. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, or I guess I'm really hoping, that there's a way to do that from a prior commitment to grace as the center. And I'm suggesting this morning that to divide over differences of opinions and perspectives as tribes centered on rightness do, that that is exactly the wrong instinct. It, it gives into our most primal tribal nature, one designed to help us to survive in a world that no longer exists. If we are going to thrive in this world, and the time and place we now find ourselves in, if the center is going to hold, it has to have the gravity of God's grace. My hope is Storyline would continue to be a community that is incredibly diverse in our opinions and perspective on such things because we are growing ever more deeply centered on that which can hold. To that end, Starting tomorrow, I'll be hosting a Zoom call from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock on Monday nights for the next six weeks. We're going to be starting a conversation around some difficult topics, uh, around different perspectives on things like racial disparity and, and social injustice. And the point is not to convince anyone of anything. It's just to present different perspectives on this really complicated and important issue. I hope you'll join us. You can find the link on our website. Look, here's the deal. The mission God has given us is unique. We are a peculiar community precisely because the center holding us together is bigger than our own preferences, perspectives, and rightness. It's not easy, but goodness rarely is. I believe Storyline 
And the gospel of grace has a critical role to play in this moment as more and more Americans are realizing being right just isn't good enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. I want to say a special prayer this morning for those of us struggling with any aspect of this pandemic, isolation, loneliness, fear, economic disruption are very common right now. I pray that you'd place people on our hearts that we could reach out to this week to check in on, to support, and to love. And I pray for the social unrest in our nation. May this be a moment we look back on as labor pains where something really hard led to something really beautiful. Please help Storyline to see our role in all of that. As we log off this morning, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us, folks. Um, Don't forget tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, for that Zoom call. I hope you'll join us, and I'll see you then.